Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. All of this just shows how interdependent we are on all of our economies together, and yet we're all fighting and not coordinating. When China and America fight, it's like mom and dad are fighting, and everybody suffers. Enter Thunderdome. Welcome to another edition of Thunderdome! Fight between the two largest economies in the world and then lots of others. And it finishes here. Two men enter, one man leaves. Where we're just tearing each other apart to see who gets what. Anyway. Hey, Nerdcasters. I'm Ben White, sitting in for Scott Bland this week because he's on paternity leave. I'm an economics reporter, and my big questions right now are not just about the U.S. economy, which, by the way, just hit 30 million jobless claims, but the global economy as well. Having covered like political figures who often get put under house arrest, I've often wondered what that must be like. And I've come to the conclusion that I would do really well under house arrest. <laughs> Nahal Tusi is Politico's foreign affairs correspondent. I'm totally fine. And this week on the show, Nahal is helping me break down how the toxic political relationship between China and the U.S. affects health solutions, the global economy, basically everything. What frustrates me about all this, I mean, there's a million things that frustrate me about all it, but the one is that, you know, the U.S. and China are basically codependents. You know, we absolutely depend on them for low-cost goods to import that people can buy that uh, we don't necessarily make here, and they need to sell them to us, and we also want to sell as much as we can to them uh, in agricultural products and everything else, you know, giant booming market that everybody wants to get into, and yet right now we are just beating the crap out of each other rhetorically. So you kind of made the point that it's like mom and dad fighting when mom and dad need to, you know, get along to provide for for the family. Um, so, you know, this really is kind of a dysfunctional uh, relationship. I wonder the extent to which the Chinese and the Americans can have this high-level rhetorical fight over the coronavirus, but at the same time somehow move forward on other fronts uh, like trade. And we can dig a little deeper into trade. But this one seems really big. Like, I mean, Trump is basically saying this is all the Chinese fault. They lied about it. Um, deflecting all blame to the Chinese and the Chinese saying it's a bald face lie. Uh, is this such a big fight that it f just fundamentally alters the relationship or can we do like the public fighting and then privately still try to kind of coordinate and get along? Well, two things to remember. First of all, before the coronavirus showed up, the Chinese-U.S. relationship was already in a downward spiral. I mean, this goes back, frankly, to even under Obama. I mean, things were just getting worse because the Chinese were making all sorts of moves on the political front, the military front, such as, you know, staking claims in the South China Sea, etc., that were just upsetting the United States, including Democrats. Uh, so things were just on a bad path to begin with. And then you have... Trump, who comes in and he does something that is, I don't want to say it's unprecedented, but it was certainly odd and noticeable, which is that he 
basically tore down kind of what was a wall between the economic relationship with, with China and the political relationship with China, right? So in the past, the U.S. really tried to keep the two things separate. The Chinese didn't necessarily always do that, but the U.S. was like, look, we have our economic relationship and then we have our other relationships. And that was partly because, look, we rely on them economically and they rely on us. But Trump mixed the two things together, everything, you know, including tariffs, other things that he imposed in the Chinese, because he felt like they were being unfair to us on the trade front. Um, he would cloak it in uh, ideas like national security, that sort of thing. So those things were all already happening. And then you have this virus that affects every single sector of our life. <laughs> so, I mean, when we have a situation now, we have something where it's all tangled up together and the political stuff is impacting the economic stuff, especially when you have a president who doesn't always necessarily separate the two. No, he obviously doesn't. And his one chief accomplishment before all this happened was signing this phase one trade agreement with the Chinese that at least stopped his tariffs on imported Chinese goods uh, from going higher and expanding them more. But, but Ben, was that really, I mean, this trade, this right. phase one trade agreement, like, was it really that big of a deal? No, 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 it wasn't. You know, it's very little change fundamentally from what the Chinese have at least, you know, on paper agreed to before, didn't take off all of the tariffs, certainly didn't end the trade war, it just stopped it from escalating even further and doing more damage to both sides. But still, it was something that at least, you know, eased tensions and perhaps opened a door to further negotiations and a lessening of trade tensions. Frankly, I don't see any reason the Chinese right now would adhere to any of it. Um, although perhaps, you know, you'll argue that it's in their benefit to do so to some degree. But, you know, if I were uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese government, I'd be super pissed with some of the stuff that Trump and the White House are saying right now. And the fact that he's unwilling to take any blame for not doing anything between January and March on the virus. But do the Chinese have any incentive to, you know, adhere to that deal or is that deal just gone and we're back to square one with the Chinese? Well, I think it's first of all, there's the political incentive and then there's like the reality. Can they ad actually adhere to the deal? Will their supply chains, their economic um, arrangements, uh, their their plans to purchase um, items from the U.S., will those items even be available for them to purchase? So there's a question of can they and then there's a question of do they want to? And that leads to the political angle, which is basically another. This is again, this was something that was happening before the virus. So this virus is such a such a, an extraordinary actor because it just really struck at the most opportune time for it, which is that the Chinese, their diplomatic efforts were becoming much, much more aggressive, right? One of their top diplomats uh, said that he wanted Chinese diplomats to have a fighting spirit, right? And so again, this was all pre-virus in the months before, um, you have Chinese ambassadors and Chinese uh, spokesmen for the foreign ministry, other things using Twitter, other types of media to really ramp up their criticism of America in particular, uh, but also other Western countries. They came out punching, sometimes like surprising people like, dude, wh where did you guys come from? And why are you doing this? It was so unusual, so not the norm for the way Chinese conduct diplomacy. They're very protocol conscious, that sort of thing. Um, so suddenly you have this kind of anger coming from them. Um, and it was partly to stoke nationalist 
feelings within the Chinese uh, population. Uh, so you have this, and then now the virus happens. And so they were already on this track of attacking the U.S. more. The U.S. under uh, Trump was already on the track of doing everything from kicking out um, or, or you know, limiting the activities of Chinese journalists in the U.S. and, and other moves. Uh, and so things were already bad. Then you have the virus. And, and so now they're still on this track where they are very much out there, the Chinese diplomats, other t- top Chinese officials. So you have these Chinese officials going on e- even, you know, Western news organizations to criticize the, the United States very directly. And so things are just nasty on, on mm-hmm. from them as well as from the United States, where President Trump, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and of course, Peter Navarro, uh, a top aide to President Trump, who is very, very anti-China. And they are just very much ramping up the rhetoric. Now, I have to say one thing, um, you know, Trump, there is this one thing with Trump, which is that he is inconsistent in this. Okay. Oftentimes, he's happy to criticize the Chinese, but he, you know, doesn't necessarily want to endanger his relationship with the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping. Wait, what? Inconsistent? (laughs) And we're going to get on to a great piece you wrote about uh, Joe Biden and China and a rift in the Democratic Party. Um, But I want to stick with this for just a second. And pull back the lens to just how bad this is, that it is the relationship is so toxic and so horrible now, not just from the economic perspective, that's obviously bad because ultimately it hurts both sides. And I don't necessarily know the answer to which side it hurts worse, but it's definitely mutual assured destruction if we have, um, you know, totally broken trade relationships with China. But in terms of just the virus itself and Figuring out how to, um, you know, either eradicate it, but get to proper treatments and testing and, and all the rest of it. If we are not communicating with them and cooperating with them and understanding what went on there, it makes it a lot harder for us to respond. So it just seems to me like a fundamental problem in the global reaction to COVID-19 is the fact that we are in such a bad place with China. It's just, um, it's pretty grim. That's right. And traditionally speaking, Scientists around the world have long tried to avoid politics, right? They have their own agreements and ways to share information. And that's true among um, Asian, Chinese, U.S., uh, European scientists in general. And my understanding is that to a large degree, that sort of sharing of information on things like therapeutics and vaccines, it's continuing to some extent. But there is definitely a fear that the politics will catch up to it because the governments can very much uh, impose blockades on their scientists and others from talking to one another. Now, the other part of it is, you know, you're talking about cooperation. Everybody wants to, um, first of all, not get this virus, but also if they get it, they want to be cured or they want to find a way to vaccinate themselves and their families against it in the future. The way that we get to that is to actually have distribution systems that help everybody all over the world get access to these medicines and vaccines. And there is a very real question about whether the U.S. and China are willing to cooperate to have this global system available or whether it's going to be simply this intense global competition for these very medicines, just the same way we've seen the competition for protective equipment, such as masks and gloves and other things. And when you're talking about two countries who rely on one another's supply chains and whose work affects every other country on the planet, again, this mom and dad fighting thing is not not going to help. 
No, it's not going to help. And I don't know, there's probably nothing terribly hopeful to say about that. I wish I feel like in all these things I'm doing right now uh, for Politico, I keep writing and saying very depressing things. And I want to be able to inject more um, hope and light. And maybe we can do that down the road. But I'm not feeling it at this moment. Is there anything that makes you feel positive that we could pivot uh, in some way? Or are you in the same place as I am, which is we're screwed? It's hard to find a lot of hope. I think, you know, some of it comes down to partisanship, though. If you ask Democrats, they'll say, well, there is hope because we believe Joe Biden will win uh, in November and there will be a new president in charge when the question of vaccine distribution is more of a reality, right? Of course, Republicans completely disagree with that. But so the question of hope might, to some extent, come down to your party affiliation. Yeah, as everything does. Well, that's a nice natural pivot to Joe Biden and his presidential campaign and his chances of defeating Trump in November. Uh, And you wrote a great story last week about Biden's ad, which, you know, sort of took aim at the Chinese and their response to the coronavirus. Uh, And it started a little bit of a rift on the left with people kind of upset with how Biden approached this in this ad. What, What were the complaints? Yeah, well, the thing that's important to know about this ad is that basically it was a reaction to Trump, right? The Trump campaign was attacking Biden, saying, oh, he he's too close to China. He's the one who trusts China. They started calling him Beijing Biden. OK, mm. and so the Biden campaign felt like they had to respond. So they put this ad out there that showed Trump making very complimentary comments about uh, the Chinese leader, saying that he trusted that the Chinese would get through this uh, and insisting and, and showing scenes of Joe Biden being tougher on the Chinese. I would be on the phone with China and making it clear, we are going to need to be in your country. You have to be open. You have to be clear. We have to know what's going on. But Trump rolled over for the Chinese. He took their word for it. The president tweeted, China has been working very hard to contain the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. China, I spoke with President Xi and they're working very, very hard. And I think it's going to all work out fine. Trump praised the Chinese 15 times in January and February as the coronavirus spread across the world. It's a tough situation. I think they're doing a very good job. Are you concerned about the But what was really uh, kind of bothered a lot of folks on the left, especially Asian-American activists, uh, was that the the tone of the ad seemed very ethno-nationalist even. Uh, You know, they used terms like the Chinese and they didn't often, they didn't always say the Chinese government. Uh, They didn't say Xi Jinping necessarily. Uh, So some Asian-American activists walked away from this thinking, hey, look, like, first of all, right now we're facing rising discrimination against us because of this virus. We're facing hate crimes, that sort of thing. This type of a tone in your ad is not going to help us. And secondly, they felt like it was kind of like ridiculous to try to be uh, tougher on the Chinese than Trump. They they felt like that in the long run was not necessarily going to give um, Democrats or whoever's in charge uh, any advantage because it, it kind of comes down to what we were talking about earlier. They're like, look, even if we really, really don't like the Chinese, we still have to work with them when it comes to this virus, when it comes to other major global challenges like climate change, etc. So if you're already going to be meaner to China than Trump is, how in the long run are you going to be able to, dipl- to do diplomacy with them? Uh, and it, it very much captured some of the, the struggles on the left when it comes to this issue, because China is increasingly, even among Democrats, uh, viewed with suspicion. Uh, and again, it's also an issue 
issue on the right because there are going to be folks in the long run on the right who are uncomfortable with the idea of uh, seemingly demonizing um, Asians and others. Yeah, I wonder, it seems like the Biden campaign is very much worried about getting outflanked on being tough on China uh, and so feels the need to, you know, quickly respond to what Trump did. And that, you know, invocation of Beijing Biden, that's a scary sounding thing, reminds me of Hanoi Jane from the (laughs) Vietnam War era, Um, you know, uh, so I can understand from their perspective why they would want to stake out some ground here and show that they are tough. So they're sort of caught in a little bit of a a bind here because definitely, you know, you don't want to be seen as like soft on the Chinese and let us run all over us and um, do do all these things. But you don't want to try to out-Trump Trump because you can't. And uh, along the way, you'll piss a lot of your own people off. Like, how could he have done that differently and better that wouldn't have had people calling him a, a xenophobe, uh, an anti-Asian person who is going to stoke, you know, racist uh, attacks? I mean, I think some of the language, maybe if he had simply said the Chinese government uh, in the ad more, uh, instead of sometimes just saying the Chinese, that sort of thing. Some of the imagery also, I mean, they showed like, you know, what looked like menacing Chinese uh, security guards, that sort of thing. Uh, Maybe focus it a little more on Trump as opposed to China. Um, You know, part of this is it's kind of a bigger issue that the Democrats have always had on foreign policy when it comes to political messaging, which is that Republicans seem to be very much able to kind of cast the world in black and white terms, you know, and the Democrats often are try to bring some nuance to it. So whereas Trump, the Trump teams, um, Trump campaigns uh, approach on China is we're going to be tough. You know, the Democrats approach is to say we're going to be tough, but smart. The problem is you kind of lose people when you go into the but yeah. smart part. And and that's just a campaign um, test every time that comes up for Democrats, especially on foreign policy, is their their desire to have nuance, whereas the Republicans often don't don't mind about being very, very stark and direct. All right. So let's try to tie this thing up in some kind of a bow, which, you know, is hard to do in a complex topic like this and a fraught relationship like this. But, you know, our fundamental point, I think we're trying to get across to people is the coronavirus came at a incredibly sensitive time in the relationship between the world's two largest economic superpowers and scrambled that relationship in perhaps unfixable ways, which are going to hurt both countries economically and are going to hurt everybody in terms of response to the virus. Like when you think about this from, you know, a kind of global perspective, what is your takeaway on the impact the virus has had on the U.S.-China relationship and how bad is it going to be for, you know, both the economic situation and the public health situation? Well, sometimes part of my brain that's a little wacky takes over and says, you know what, this is all some sort of prelude to an alien invasion. Uh, they have you know, sent this virus to pit us against one another. It happened to launch in, it happened to emerge in China, you know, but then the more rational side of me <laughs> um, says, yes. I entertain yes. all kinds of thoughts like that, so <laughs> you're not alone. Um, But look, the rational side of me says uh, that this is just this virus, this tiny, tiny little virus that did emerge in Asia, in China, as far as we know, um, has really brought the mighty to their knees and exposed uh, the vulnerabilities uh, of this incredibly interlocked system. 
But the vulnerability is is not necessarily in the economics or um, in in the science science. It's in the politics. And my my analysis is that if we could get the politics right, then we could get the other stuff right. And mm-hmm. if there could be a coordinating mechanism, if there was a way that these two countries could work together because we are in this together, I think we will see some sort of a solution to this in the long run that helps everyone. For now, though, I don't get the sense that either side is willing to bend. And we're going to uh, deal with the fallout from that for a long time. Trump's regular references, kind of oblique, kind of throwaway lines at the end of some of his long, intricate somewhat garbled sentences where he alludes to the idea that maybe they did it on purpose and that it was a concerted effort by the Chinese to attack the West through the release of this horrific virus. No evidence to suggest that's the case. No evidence to suggest that, you know, labs deliberately released this thing. But I can't think that his regularly bringing up that specter of a covert Chinese attempt to destroy the West while also hurting their own people is particularly helpful in mending this relationship. Uh, I think it very much undermines uh, the relationship. Although, again, I am one who is very skeptical of the information that's put out by the Chinese. And yes, there were labs in Wuhan that were studying coronaviruses and So, look, the idea that one of these viruses might have accidentally escaped this lab, it's not completely out of the realm. But when the idea of a weaponized virus, you're right, there's no evidence for it. In fact, there's evidence kind of against it because scientists say, look, if somebody was going to design a virus that was going to intentionally kill people and this was a weapon, they would have designed it in a different way than this particular virus has been designed. Uh, So there there is evidence against the idea that it was purposeful. But the accidental, that sort of thing, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, I would not rule that out entirely. I think there's, uh, there's room to, to do investigations and find out. The question is, will the Chinese be willing to do that? Will the Chinese be willing to share what they learn? And that goes back to the fact that we have a terrible political relationship with them right now. And that doesn't help anything when it comes to finding out the reality and the truth and the facts. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction between um, the fact that, you know, there's a potential there that, you know, it did escape uh, by accident. I feel like Trump kind of pivots towards, uh, you know, the conspiracy theory of uh, intentional, which doesn't make any sense. As you note, if you're going to do that and unleash a uh, deadly virus on the world, you would not necessarily do it with. uh, But he thinks it makes sense politically because it deflects the blame from him. Of course, of course, right. Never mind the fact that he was warned repeatedly in January, even by, as you mentioned, Peter Navarro, who's super China hawk and sometimes kind of a uh, a laughing stock in the economic community for some of his positions on trade deficits and what they mean and uh, what the trade deficit with China means. But, you know, he was banging the drum early on in these memos saying, you know, this thing is really bad. It's going to come here. It could kill millions of people. Basically got ignored and Trump said he didn't see it. And, you know, we've got all sorts of reports that it was in his intelligence briefings and he ignored it. Um, so uh, obviously, clearly, to his perceived political advantage to deflect all that blame, I think it's probably insane uh, for him to take no um, blame for that. I don't know what your view on that is. I, I like the idea that some people have floated about having a kind of 9-11 commission style review of what happened during this entire pandemic one day down the line. And I think that, you know, hopefully 
that that will happen, that there will be strong investigations by people um, who are trustworthy, who can one day, you know, write the history of what really went down, who did what when, and where the blame lies. And to be honest with you, I don't think it's going to come down to one person. I think this is about systematic failures uh, all across uh, and, you know, hopefully we'll learn our lesson, this humanity of ours, uh, and, you know, learn this so that this doesn't happen again in the future. One would hope that that would be the case. We all know how much Trump loves oversight and uh, inspector generals <laughs> and congressional oversight. I'm sure he'll be really willing to comply with all of that. But at some point, yeah, there has to be a full investigation of who knew what, when, what they did about it. Maybe it's post-Trump in the White House because he's going to do everything he can to block it. Anyway, I hope we injected a little bit of positivity into this discussion uh, of the broken relationship between the U.S. and China and what it means for both economics and public health. And Nahal Tusi, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. Of course. And look, if the aliens do show up, maybe they'll be benevolent rulers. This I talk about with my kid. He said, the, it's time for the aliens to come up here and say, okay, you guys have blown it fundamentally. Uh, <laughs> we are going to intervene and we are going to help you. Uh, and here is a vaccine. Uh, get about your business. Stop being so completely full of shit on everything and stop beating the crap out of each other. And, uh, and then they'll do that and then they'll fly away. Um, so that, that's probably not the uh, piece of hope we want to give people because I think the odds something. of that are pretty slim. But it's something we can think about and dream about and hope about. Uh, that benevolent aliens will rescue us from the coronavirus. Uh, anyway, uh, Hal, good luck with your house arrest and um, stay safe and stay healthy and uh, stay as sane as you seem to be, which is quite impressive. Thanks, guys. Take care. Here are a few other things I've been watching this week in big political news. Our colleagues David Siders, Alex Thompson, and Laura Baron Lopez wrote this week about Joe Biden's veep stakes really heating up. I don't know. What do you think? There's a who? Who is it? There's a smorgasbord of people to pick from. <laughs> Joe Biden is also now facing a potentially serious sexual assault allegation from a woman named Tara Reid. He's going to have to deal with it head on in a way that he really has not so far. The House goes back to Washington, then doesn't. Democrats said they would follow the Senate back to D.C. on Monday, then they backed off over health risks, which really reminded me of King Arthur and his knights deciding not to go back to Camelot in Monty Python's Holy Grail, declaring it a silly place. Well, on second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. Right. Right. All right, that's our show. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ahmed, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. And want to hear more conversations about the economy? Search for my podcast, Politico Money, where I'm interviewing newsmakers. This week, I interviewed the CEO of NASDAQ. Scott is out for the next few weeks on paternity leave, but we have a bunch of great guest hosts. See you soon, and thanks for listening.